All right, I got to get set up here for round two. My notes all squared away. And uh, Merry Christmas. We're doing a series called In the Names of Jesus. We've been looking at the names of Jesus today. We're only looking at one name for Jesus, and that is that he is the Word of God. And we're looking at it in John chapter 1. And we don't have a screen today, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there or on your phone or on your tablets or iPads. doesn't matter. Use any technology. It's all accepted here. Do not text. Don't go to Facebook right now. Even if you get bored, you can't. You know what I mean? It's just a sacred moment here, okay? Uh, Actually, you can go on Facebook. You can tweet as long as you say really nice things about me. John chapter 1, and I'm going to read this passage. And kind of what we've been doing with this series, I've been reading long passages. So I ask you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to be traditional. Stand with me as I read scripture. That way I don't put you to sleep before I even get started. Uh, that That would be not good. And so let me start, and let me read. This is the prologue to the Gospel of John, one of the most majestic passages on Jesus anywhere. The Church of England has a service on Christmas Day, and this is always their New Testament scripture for Christmas Day, and it's perfect for Christmas and the advent of Christ. So listen as we celebrate this word about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. There is an ideology, I'm going to call it a doctrine. There's a doctrine out there. It's the doctrine of nihilism. Nihilism is a viewpoint that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless. It is a doctrine that denies any objective ground of truth and especially of moral truths. The idea of nihilism or nihilistic thoughts is that life and all that we experience is useless, is meaningless. Nihilism denies any kind of ground for objective truth or universal truth and 
Well, it's, it's depressing. Can I get an amen? It's just really, really depressing. And David Wells, who is a great scholar guy, wrote this book called Christ in the Postmodern World. And what he argues is that you and I are living in a society that is experiencing what he calls social nihilism. Social nihilism is the idea that life is meaningless and that we are to cover up the void with plenty, with abundance. Here's what he says in Christ in a Postmodern World in a chapter titled Christ in a Meaningless World. He says this, quote, Luxury and plenty, entertainment and recreation, sex and drugs become the ways of creating surrogate meaning or momentary distraction or at least some numbness. It is surrogate meaning and distraction to conceal inner blankness, the depletion of self, so that it aches, so that its aches can be forgotten. He goes on to say in this amazing book, amazing chapter, he says, quote, This is our nihilism. However, it is not frontal nihilism. It is instead sly, evasive, superficial, and furtive in its strategies for avoiding the question of ultimate meaning, hopeful in its ability to surmount the void. It assumes the complete emptiness of life, but does not want to linger over that emptiness. Rather than be tormented with dark thoughts, it is better just to make a joke, move on, buy something. Now, what's he saying? What he's saying is is that deep down we all believe that life is meaningless, but we don't want to deal with it. We want to avoid that void. And so what we do is we distract ourselves. And how do we distract? Well, we distract ourselves a million different ways. Entertainment, luxury, plenty, things, stuff, iPhones, iPads, constantly swiping and trying to compulsively forget that possibly there is no meaning to life. There's a void we are trying to ignore because deep down we don't really believe in God or meaning or truth or transcendent love. Deep down we're terrified of what we might find if we really thought deeply about these things. So unfortunately and surprisingly we agree with Bertrand Russell who's just this great happy guy and he said this, listen to this happy thought. He said, quote, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Thank you, Mr. Russell. Everything good that happens, it's useless, it's vanity, it's all, it's all going to be destroyed in the debris, in the heap of ashes that is the universe. Or, in case that's not happy enough for you, let me give you Carl Sagan, this happy prophet. Here's what he said. He said, quote, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. He needs the happy song, doesn't he? I mean, we're just a little pale blue dot in the universe. And look at that dot. 
Look at that dot in the universe and tell me that it's all useless. And of course, his conclusion is we should therefore love one another. It's like, why? Right? Why would I love you if I don't have to? <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is insane. But this is what in our hearts and deep down we struggle with. And here's the truth. Here's the truth about human nature. Here's the truth about me. And here's the truth about you. We struggle with whether it all means something. We wonder about the void. And we, you know when we know we struggle with it? Real terms, real life, not through books. But in real life, here's how we struggle with it. Every time we fail, we go, what am I doing? Does this mean something? Or every time we succeed, we accomplish some great goal. We graduate. We have a baby. And we're holding the baby, and it's euphoric, and it's, it's love, and it's happiness, and it's greatness. And then at the end of the day, two weeks later, we go, we're holding the same baby, and we're going, does this mean anything? When we, when we do something great, we get a great big pile of money, and we just, there it is, a big pile of money. And there it is, and we go, what does it mean? Deep down, and I might say, I might even say, let me be frank, I think sinfully, we go, it doesn't mean anything. And we say, I'm a, I'm a nihilistic person. Now, what is the answer to nihilism? The answer to nihilism is a different doctrine. The doctrine of incarnation is the solution to our nihilism. And incarnation is the Christian conviction... That God became a human being without ceasing to be God to give us the meaning of life. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten God. Do you see what he's saying? It's very poetic. But in fact, it's a hymn. It's probably originally a hymn that was sung in those house churches that started the whole Christian movement. And what they were saying is, it's not meaningless. It's not a void. The blackness can be overcome. The void can be overcome by the great bright light and life that is Jesus. Christ. Incarnation is a way of thinking about life and walking in life that's filled with hope and love and joy to the world because God has revealed the word. God has revealed the word. In fact, in a passage that is simply filled with Profound ideas that we can't even cover all today. But one of the words that I think is a key word in verse 4. Look at John 1 verse 4. It says, in him was life. Life. That word life is, comes from a Greek word. Cool Greek word, by the way. Zoe. Any word is cool that begins with a Z. Can, can I get an amen? It's a strong Zoe. And what does Zoe mean? Zoe is a form of life that's not just existence. That's not just breathing life. What Zoe meant in any lexicon, what it means is it means meaningful life. Yeah, meaningful life. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10? He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have Zoe. That they might have zoe and zoe abundantly zoe. Filled with meaning. 
filled with purpose, filled with the presence of the very Word of God. You see, and what, what does that tell us about spiritual warfare? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Kill, steal, and destroy what? Meaning? Purpose? You know, we think demons are found in the Hollywood movies where the, where the beds shake, you know what I mean? You know, we think demons are, you know, when heads start turning around and start cussing, beep, 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 you know what I mean? No, you know where, you know where demons are found? In the battlefield of the mind. And they're whispering. And they're saying, it doesn't mean anything. You don't mean anything. Your life, believe in nihilism. Believe in the freedom and the liberation that there is no right and wrong. There is no light and dark. There are no moral categories that we're all held accountable to. You are the God of your life and it's all meaningless. So go out, eat, drink, and be merry because it means nothing. That's demonic. That's spiritual warfare. And Jesus came to kick the thief out. And Jesus came to give us life. He came to give us meaningful life. The incarnation is the conviction that God became a human being without ceasing to be God to give us the meaning of life. And we ask ourselves, how does Jesus give me the meaning of life? Why would we say that the incarnation is the answer to nihilism? There's a few reasons I can find. I won't get to them all. I can tell because I didn't in the first service. And by the clock, I'm not going to get to them today. But I will tell you a few reasons. Number one... Jesus kicks out a meaningless life and gives us meaning because what Jesus is, God is. What Jesus is, God is. In other words, Jesus brings to us God. He is the word of God and he has come and dwelt with us. And I love, I mean, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that it doesn't say, you know, and God sent a photo of himself. And put it up on the mantle and worship it and do really good things because it's on your mantle. Like, I'm really glad it doesn't, it doesn't say that the photo was God and came to us. It says that the word of God became a human being. God came down because we couldn't go up. And when Jesus came down, who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh. And the reason why he was God in the flesh coming down is so that God personally, in relationship, could wrap his arms around us, flesh and blood, and come to us and deliver us from our darkness. As we keep saying in this series, this has been one of the big themes of the series, God didn't come down to give us a job performance review. God didn't come down to hire us to be his employees. God came down to adopt us as his sons and daughters to belong to his family. God came to us to love us, even though we're not always so lovable. I mean, I am, but it's me, but... Jesus is God who's come to us. It says in the beginning was the word. That means the word is eternal, preexistent. When the beginning was, Jesus already was there. That verb was the word. In the beginning was the word. That points to the eternality of Jesus. But I'll be frank with you. I don't think you need that verb to show you that Jesus is eternal. Because the moment that Jesus is called the word of God, that very moment is when Jesus is eternal. Because has God ever lived without his speech? 
Isn't God eternal with no beginning? And did God ever have a moment in his very existence where he didn't have a voice, where he didn't have a word? The moment it says that Jesus is the word of God, it's saying he's eternal, that he's always existed, that when he came and he was born in Bethlehem, he was not either adding to his human nature, divine nature, but in fact, he was adding to his divine nature, human nature. He's eternal. He's preexistent. He has always existed in eternity past. What Jesus is, God is. You see, Jesus it was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus has personality. Jesus is relational. Jesus is in relationship with the Father. He's distinct from the Father. The Word was with God. It says, if you jump your eyes down to verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, Jesus has personality, he's been in relationship, and he's been in relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. The one thing that is eternal is love. Did you know that? And God didn't create human beings because he needed somebody to love. God's always loved. God has always loved. The Father's always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And there's always been a small group. Can I get an amen? And in that small group, you know, uh, Tim Keller, who's literally... He's literally the most quotable human being alive today. And what he said is that if God is Trinity, then relationship is the point. If God is Trinity, it's really profound. Because the point is not religion. The point is not check up from the neck up. The point is a relationship with a loving God. Jesus came down. Jesus was with God to show that he knows what relationship is. He knows what love is. He knows the way relationships work. He both gives us relationship with God, and then he shows us how to be in relationship with each other. And guess what we really need? We really need to know how to have relationship with each other, right? That's why we need him to come to Cana. We need him to come to our weddings and to turn water into wine. We need him to come and show us how to do relationship. So many people evaluate Christianity in moral terms. They go, well, Christianity is about, you know, learning how to do the right things and being a good boy and a good girl so that Santa will come. And Actually, Christians don't believe in Santa. So that Saint Nick can come and bring you gifts. You see, that's not it. Jesus was the word who was with God in relationship with the Father, and he shows us that relationship is the point. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Fully divine, fully God in the flesh. I think it's so profound that God would humble himself. Who is that in the cave that's born in Bethlehem? Who is that that's in the feed trough? That's God. God who who said, I don't have to be in a palace. I don't have to be in Jerusalem. I don't have to be in a fancy religious place. I can come into the dirt of life, into the little places of life, and be a big deal to little people like Mary and Joseph. I can be a big deal to regular folk like these Nazarenes. I can be a big deal to these Galilean, hillbilly, Oklahoman truck drivers. I can be a big deal in their life. Think about what Jesus did. He grows up. He becomes a a fully grown man who's also fully God. And who did God choose to be his disciples? He chose drunk fishermen, cussing fishermen like Peter. He He chose overly zealous, overly political Matthew. He chose tax collectors. He chose, he chose people who would never get along usually. And he chose his circle as regular folks just like you and I. 
I think it's tragic that religion puts these people on stained glass windows and puts the halo around their head. You know what I'm talking about. And you go, and they got the big halo, and they're all so important and everything like that. Dude, they weren't important. But Jesus was important. And the moment he entered into their life, they became a big deal because Jesus is a big deal. You see... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when God came down in Jesus Christ, he makes a big deal out of little things, little places, little people, even sinful people. Jesus is God. Not only is he God uh, eternal and in relationship and God and deity, but he is God the creator. It says all things were created through Jesus. So in Genesis 1, when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and there was a vast void of darkness, and God spoke light into into existence. And by his very word, out of nothing, he created everything that is good and bright and orderly and wise. God created all of that. And what this is saying is that that all happened through the creative agency of Jesus Christ. Jesus was there. Jesus was the word that brought the light into the void of darkness in Genesis 1. And if he can do that in the first creation, then he He can do that in our second creation, can he? I can be born with the void of God. I can be born in sin. I can be born in darkness. I can be born broken. And guess what Jesus can do? He can create something out of this mess. Because I am. I'm a mess. And my hope is not inner resources. My hope is not what the world tells me it is. My world is that Jesus will come in and create order out of my chaos. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the meaning of Advent. This is the meaning of the incarnation. God became a human being without ceasing to be God. To give us the meaning of life. To give us Zoe, abundant life. Because we didn't have it without him. We didn't have it without him. He created all things. Therefore, he can recreate all things. Not only did he create all things, but finally... What Jesus is, God is, Jesus sustains all of creation. In him was life. All of creation is held up. What holds up the universe? What keeps us from spinning out of control? What keeps the cosmos from from self-destroying itself so that we are no longer able to live as human beings? I would say it is the word Jesus. He holds it together. There are other lyrical passages that point to this same idea, the beauty of who Jesus is, what Jesus is, God is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 22, it says, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things Hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Like some translations that say that he must have first place in all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. Jesus, the word of God, can do all of that. Everybody say all of that. 
human failure is never final as long as God's grace is operational through the word of Jesus. He can make us complete. He can reconcile us through his person and through his work to God. That is the love of God through Jesus. Another lyrical passage that points all of these are probably hymns. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You want to hear from God? It's going to have to come through Jesus. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer goes on to say that Jesus is greater than all the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus is greater than anybody you can think of because Jesus is God. And we say, you know, we say, what do I do with this? I mean, what do I do with this? This is a gift, and what do I do? Remember when you were a kid, and Christmas Day would come, right? That's what I did on Christmas Day. I did that right there. <laughs> Christmas Day would come, you know, and I'd like walk down and go, what's up? Santa came. And I'd look at the packages, and I'd unwrap the package, and there was a G.I. Joe. Now, I'm not a very engineered kind of type mind. I know some of you are. So I'm sure some of you pulled out your G.I. Joe and you were like, I wonder how the Mattel company put his arm on that piece of plastic right there. Or you might have asked, I wonder what kind of model paint they used to paint the G.I. Joe. See, my deal was, does he have a Kung Fu grip? <laughs> See what I mean? Because I want to know who we were going to beat up with my G.I. Joe. You know, what armies we're going to conquer. You know, what are we going to do with this G.I. Joe? So I didn't care about how they put it together. or I didn't care whether G.I. Joe existed in eternity past or if the G.I. Joe, you know, was, was God in the flesh. All I want to know is what does he do? What do I do with G.I. Joe? And here, here's the thing. The Bible says this is what you do with Jesus. You worship him. You sing You add joy to your life, not because your circumstances are so great, but because Christ is so great and he loves you. You join the choir, not literally the choir. We don't have a choir, but you know what I'm saying. You join the choir of saints that have stopped in their life and stopped everything they're doing, no matter what was going on, regular people coming together, and they sing and they worship and they say, you are great. And what happens when we worship Christ? What happens when we make him preeminent? What happens when we make him central to the way that we see the world, the optic by which we see the whole world? What happens is our heart is glad even when we are weeping. Our heart is hopeful even when we're in pain. Our heart is loving even when we have bitter things that happen to us our heart is healed even when we've been abused because as we lift up the son of God our very life is healed in his name and that's all we have to do is believe and receive and welcome this word of God in Christ we don't have to worry about our performance we just surrender and sing see scholars say this is a hymn this is this is what those those Christians sang in their church, when their, when their machines weren't working, 
when their, when their overhead projectors weren't working and they couldn't put up screens on this, they looked down at the words on the page and the words on their page in the first century said, Jesus is the word of God and he came. I needed him to come. He's the hero. He's my knight in shining armor. He is mighty God who's come to deliver me. I sing. I love you, Jesus. I wouldn't have known how to be a daddy or a husband or a, or a pastor. And I still struggle with all of those things on some levels. But thank you for coming into my life. I sing. I sing in my car about Jesus. I sing about Jesus in my house. I sing. Last night we were singing. The A-team and I, we were singing. Christmas Eve we'll sing. And we'll join the choir. And we'll sing to him because he's how we see the world. C.S. Lewis used to say, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus is the one we see everything else by. And we can believe in him because once we start looking at life through the optic of Jesus, everything starts to make sense. You begin to make order about what's right and wrong. You begin to make order about what's darkness and what's light. You see, God's not a God of confusion. and Everything begins to come in line through seeing Jesus. The incarnation is... The conviction that God became a human being without ceasing to be God to give us the meaning of life. And that is that Jesus is God, the Son of God. But, you know, the second thing that Jesus really does in his incarnation is not revealed who God is. But he, he brings to us what we need, what we deeply need. So the second point would be what people need, Jesus brings. And what is it exactly that Jesus brings that we need? Because we think we know what we need. I mean, today we're all, we all came to church and we're like, we're driving to church. And, you know, I mean, if you're like me, you know, I know you all think that when I drive to church, like I'm all talking in tongues and all spiritual and like, you know, like I got this great godly sermon on my mind. I'm a godly pastor and I'm, I'm praying in the spirit today. You know, that's typically, I mean, most of the time that's what happens, but... You know, sometimes I'm driving to church, and my, like, my mind is not on the sermon. My mind is like, if I only had fill in the blank, I'd be happier. You know, if I only, you know, I'm not going to give you examples, but you know. And you all, too, we're distracted, you know. And sometimes, I mean, if you're like me, I barely, I barely limp up here even before I preach. Last week, I limped up, and I, like, crawled off. Right? So, I mean, we're all struggling here. We're all walking around with black eyes spiritually. And, and we think we know what we need. But here's the thing. Jesus brings us what we really need. And it's surprising. It's counterintuitive what we really need. This passage tells us. It tells us what we need in verse 9. Now, watch this. Jesus is the word of God. He comes into the world incarnation. And in verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here is some of John's favorite themes in all of his writings. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, by the way. 
And John is contrasting these ideas of light and darkness. Obviously, he means spiritual light, spiritual darkness. And just like in Genesis 1, there was physical light and darkness, and God spoke physical light into the void. Here, John is saying in the second creation, Jesus has come to bring the light into our spiritual void, our spiritual darkness. But that still doesn't answer the question, what is light and darkness? What is this metaphor? What's this mean? See, And light, most people are like, well, it's moral categories. Light is what you do that's good good things that you do, good morals, and darkness is bad. So I could be a red-faced preacher and say, you're all a bunch of fornicators, you know what I'm saying? And like, that's darkness. Walk in purity, that's light, which is true. But anyways, no, it's not true. I'm sorry. You're not, I'm sorry. Where am I going with this? Do I need to go back to the notes? Probably need to go back. I'm about to get in trouble, see? But here's what it really means. Light, light is loving God. And darkness is not loving God. It's that simple. Now, there are moral results of all of that. There's immoral stuff that comes from hating God. But darkness is hating God. And light is loving God. It's that simple. It's more about our relationships than it is about our outward things. Now, our relationships impacts our outward things. But you get what I'm saying. And Jesus is light. He comes in. He's God. He's light. Right? And what's this passage saying? It's saying that when he comes, the closer the light of who God is comes to humanity, incarnation, the harder our hearts become towards God. It's like when somebody you don't like is far away from you, you don't think about them. Because they're far away. It doesn't matter. I don't like them, but they're far away. I don't even have to think about them. But if somebody you don't like starts coming closer and closer, and I love Kevin, and Kevin loves me, but you know what I'm saying. If, if Kevin didn't like me today, and I was coming close, and I touched him, see, the closer I get to him, the more he's like, ooh, man, I'm going to bow up against you, son. I'm going to bow up. You know what I mean? Like, step one closer. You know, step one foot closer. Bring it on in here. And you get like this. Well, here's what happens. It's saying that as Jesus comes... The closer he gets, the more humanity bows up and says, no, I don't, want, I don't want God. I don't want God here. I don't want God here on earth. I don't want God in my home. I don't want God in my cave. I don't want him in my feed trough. I don't want him in my Bethlehem. I don't want him in my Nazareth. I don't. And he gets closer and he gets closer and he closer. And then he grows up and he becomes a fully grown man. And he begins to speak the words of God. And we hear it and we go, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. And then he says he is God. And the moment he says he is God, what does humanity do? Crucify him. Kill him. See what I'm saying? That's why when you look at verse 9, now watch this. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone. The word for light that's used there is a word that in any lexicon means to make visible, to bring to light, to shed light upon. So what it's saying is not that Jesus comes and he brings the light and now we know how to walk down the road of life. What it's saying is, is it's saying that Jesus comes and he reveals to us who we really are. And who are we? We're rebels. We're in rebellion. You say, well, that's not very nice. I don't like that. I don't like it that you're telling me that Jesus being born in Bethlehem isn't a Hallmark card and a sweet moment with God. 
I don't like it that you're saying that Jesus being born in the manger means that I'm supposed to reveal to myself that I'm a bad boy or a bad girl. Christmas is about me being a good boy or a good girl, isn't it? Isn't the secret of getting gifts being good? And you know what God says? God says the secret to getting the gift is not being good but acknowledging you're not good. That's what he's saying. It's very profound. You know, the world says, fill yourself up and make yourself important. Look good and be trendy. And look, look, at th- these are actually really new jeans. Do you like them? I got them for my birthday. I, you know what I'm saying? Look good, sound good, drive good. You deserve this car, the salesman tells us. And the world says, fill yourself up to be filled. And you know what God says? Empty yourself to be filled. Give up. Finally give up. Finally say, I can't do it. I am God. God, I am in rebellion. That's why Jesus came. And the moment that happens, we get adopted. The moment that happens, good things begin to happen. I, 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 don't, I really don't want to compare Jesus to going to the dentist. But I went to the dentist this week for my six-month cleaning. And I got to tell you, I hate going to... How many of y'all hate going to the dentist? I hate going to the dentist. You want to know why? Because my hygienist is mean. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. That is not preacher license or exaggeration. She literally is mean. And she's like, well, sit down. And I'm like... I call her like... Because I feel like a kid in there. You know, I'm like, hello. You know, I feel so scared. I'm like, how are you doing? Have you flossed lately? You know what I mean? Then she throws me down in the chair, kicks it back really suddenly, opens up my mouth, reminds me that I am her biggest issue of the day. She literally says that. Like, your biggest problem today is me. Open up. I know. Sherry told me to stop going to her, but I really need this. I need tough love. And she opens up my mouth, and she starts digging around. You know, she got the plastic gloves, and she starts, you know, kicking around stuff and everything. like, You know what I mean? She's like, how's the church? And I'm like, Jesus, you know. And I'm trying to witness, Jesus is the savior of the world, you know what I'm saying? And she's like doing all this stuff, right? Then she goes, you, you now I'm going to reveal this to you. It's vulnerable, I know. But she's like, you're not flossing enough. I'm like, What? I'm a hillbilly. I'm from Oklahoma, man. We don't floss. That's why I come to you. <laughs> and if I'm lying, I'm dying. She always does this thing where she brings, them, she brings the light, right? And then she, brings, she hands me the mirror and says, hold the mirror. Hold it up to your mouth. And I hold it up to my mouth, and then she starts showing me things I don't want to see. And I never want you to see, because if you see these things, you'll never come back to church again. Not my church. You know what I'm saying? It's the light. Now, the, now, here's the truth, okay? This is hard truth. But if Jesus is coming close to you, he's going to bring conviction. And he's going to feel rough. Because he's bringing the light. He needs us to know where we're at. Because until you know that you're in rebellion of God, you cannot enjoy the love of God. And there are many churches and people trying to experience and enjoy the love of God, but they don't want to admit that they're in rebellion against God. And if you can't admit that you're in rebellion against God, then you can't experience the grace of God. That's just the bottom line. 
This passage tells us it sheds light, and it brings the light close, the light of the Word close to our life, and it, and it shows us two fundamental ways that humanity is in rebellion against God. You can see them in verse 10 and verse 11. The first way that humanity rebels against God is through secular results. It says that the world did not know him. The secular world. And that word know is an intimate relationship word. It means that there's a choice involved, that it's a culpable choice of humanity not to know God. It's not like, well, I just don't know who God is. I'm being ignorant. No, no, no. The text is saying that people are choosing not to know God, the world. And what is the world? In the New Testament, the world is the self-serving structures that go about building their life as if God doesn't exist. The self-serving world of idols, the idols of money, power, and sex, exchanging God for all those things and suppressing the truth of God and saying, these will be my saviors. These will be my functional saviors. You see, the world is the world of rebellion. It's the bad world. If you all grew up in church, that was conservative at all. My goodness, is it really 1141? I'm having a good time. Okay. If you ever went to a conservative church, you know. The conservative church always reminds its church of the world. The bad things the world does. And the bad things and the bad ways and the bad, the bad people of the world. All John is saying is that the whole world of humanity, the irreligious world, is in rebellion. But check this out. Watch this. Verse 11. Not only is the world not knowing him, but religion will not receive him. He came to his own. Who's that? The Jewish people, the temple, the Pharisees. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not only is, are, is the irreligious world in rebellion against God, but the religious world, the self-congratulatory religions of the world, the self-congratulatory, self-righteous people of the world who stand there and say, I'm not worldly. I don't drink. I don't spit. I don't chew. And I don't go with girls that do. I'm better than all these people. The self-congratulatory background, my grandparents, my parents, my family pride of we're all being Christians. I was raised in the church. I had hymns sung over my bassinet when I was a baby. That doesn't mean anything about your relationship to God, does it? The emptiness of religion, the religious accomplishments, the self-congratulatory forms of salvation... And they don't save. And the, and the closer that Jesus comes, the more that religion hates him. Religion hates Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. Jesus didn't come to reaffirm rebellion. Jesus came to regenerate adopted sons and daughters. I'll close with this. Look at what it says. It says, here's the third option. Not rebellion in the world. Not religious, self-congratulatory, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. 
No, 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 no. Here's the solution. The solution is adoption. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And there's three knots in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That means it's not about your color. It's not about your race. It's not about your ethnicity. Jesus is building a multicolored kingdom. Jesus is building a multiracial, multicolored, multi-socioeconomic kingdom. Poor people, rich people, black, white, Asian people. A multicolored kingdom purchased with his blood. And what does he do with all those people? Even though they don't deserve it, he adopts them. And he says, I'm going to make you children of God. And what's required? Receive. In empty hands, receive. That's it. Isn't that, isn't that funny? It's adoption. You know, we celebrated Asian, Asia Anderson's adoption and Rachel and Cameron adopting a beautiful baby there in your, in your bulletin. And Sherry and my girls went to the court with the life group and family members. They all went and they went and there was lawyers and judges and all that stuff. And, and Sherry was telling me how, how powerful it was for these parents to stand before the lawyer and the judge. And they were asked questions like, do you understand that you are taking responsibility for this baby? Do you understand that you are responsible for their care? Do you understand that you can never reverse this adoption? They will, this child is to be considered as, as important as any other child you have, fully your child. You get that. And they had to commit in a court of law to taking responsibility. That, beloved, is the gospel. Because Jesus comes and says, I will take responsibility for you. You don't have to be good. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to clean the house. Just let me in. Open up. Receive into your life what only I can give. I will be your light. I will be your life. I will be your word. I will be the one that adopts you and purchases you. At the infinite cost of my blood, I will pay the full price. And the father says to the son, do you realize that you're agreeing? For full responsibility. And that you can never give them up. You know once Jesus has got you. He'll never let you go. He's the stronghold man. And that's a beautiful thing. And you know what you're being asked to do. Is receive him. Believe. John just says believe. Believe in Jesus. I mean, what do you do if the most important person in town shows up to your house, unexpected, unannounced, doesn't send a text, doesn't send an email, doesn't call you on the phone, doesn't tell you you're stopping by, you're watching your most favorite TV show in the world, and you hear this knock, and you go, and you're like, who the heck, what the beep, you know, what? I was watching my favorite movie, and you go and you open it up, and you realize it's the most important person in town, what are you going to do? Turn off the TV. Welcome them in. Say, come on in. If you've got a piece of bread, give it to them, but you're going to welcome them in whether you got bread or not because that's the most important person that's come to see you. And God has come to your town. And he's interrupted your life. And he's saying, all you got to do is open the door and let me in. Do you believe in Christ? Incarnation is the conviction that God became a human being without ceasing to be God to give us the meaning of life. We are no longer nihilistic or in denialism. We are into incarnation. And it is a hopeful idea. 
It's a beautiful idea. And it's an idea of love. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, just the privilege, again, once again, to just open up Scripture and, and talk. I thank you that you came into my life. As messy and broken as it was and sometimes still is, I thank you that you show me and reveal to me who God is and you show me what I really need. And what I really need is adoption. What I really need is a new birth, and you give it to me. Help us to welcome you, to receive you. Help us not to be religious. Help us not to be rebellious. Help us to be receiving of your love and your grace, to accept it, to accept the fact that you've given us this gift of presence and relationship free of charge in Jesus. If you don't believe in Christ, I just want to invite you right now. Just stop right now and receive him. That's all that's required. To all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's it. It doesn't require holy water. It doesn't require a holy priest. It doesn't require a holy building. It just requires a simple act of trust in Christ. And you will be saved. You will be a child of God, adopted into his family. He will take full responsibility for you, and he will give you a new name. He will give you his name. He will give you his love. 